Welcome to Freedom Fellowship. More information can be found online at cometofreedom.com. Grab your Bibles, open your hearts. You're going to be blessed today. We have a special guest teacher with us. We love the Word of God because we love the Lord and we love what He has to say to us. So please get your hearts open and ready to receive all that He would have. If you don't want to miss any future studies from Freedom here, please subscribe now. Good morning, everybody. Uh, For those of you who uh, may not have been here last week, I'm Jonathan Mann. I am the director of Equipping Church Leaders East Africa, and I'm one of the people whom uh, Landon and the elders have asked to uh, preach uh, while uh, Landon is on sabbatical. And so actually I will, uh, this is my, my first Sunday here was last week, um, and I'll be preaching a series of 10 sermons through the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, so that's where we are. And so first, let me begin uh, with prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this fellowship of your people. And Lord God, thank you for your word. And I pray that you will speak uh, to us today uh, through your word so that we will become more like you. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, many years ago, uh, Thomas Harris published a book that became very popular, uh, and it was entitled, I'm Okay, You're Okay. And even if you have not read the book, uh, the title has entered into the popular culture uh, because it really summarizes what most of us tend to think about ourselves and others most of the time. Now, that idea that we're all pretty much okay, gets reinforced every day, particularly here where we live. The valley is a great place. Uh, And look around at your neighbors here today. There is not an axe murderer here among us, so far as I know. now, and it's sort of like, uh, the valley is sort of like uh, Garrison Keillor's Lake Wobegon, if you ever heard that, uh, where all the women are strong, all the men are good-looking, and all the children are above average. And now, when we look at some other people in other parts of the world, uh, people like ISIS and the Taliban, we see them doing the most obscene and acts of brutality to helpless, uh, innocent people. Now, we don't do things like that. And we rightly recoil when we see or read about things that happen uh, elsewhere. We think, I could never cut off somebody's head with a knife. And we're right. As long as we continue to live in peace, in a nice place, with other nice people, pretty much like ourselves. But don't kid yourself about what you are capable of. We all have the seeds within us to do the most obscene and brutal acts. But those seeds have never been watered and nurtured, and so they have not yet germinated. 
But if the circumstances were different, all of us have within us the ability to do things that none of us could imagine as we sit here today. For example, my dad's side of the family uh, uh, is from Germany. And about 150 or so years ago, uh, Germany was known as the land of poets and thinkers. But then Adolf Hitler and the Nazis came along. And there's a book called Hitler's Willing Executioners that talks about how normal, educated, respectable Germans, people just like us, willingly hunted down Jews like they were animals, tortured them wantonly, and then posed cheerfully for snapshots with their victims. Now, lest you think that those Germans were somehow different from us, in World War II, our own American soldiers in the Pacific Theater sometimes cut off and boiled the heads of dead Japanese soldiers and then sent the skulls back to their girlfriends here in the US as souvenirs. Now, in one case, a couple of young American soldiers cut off the heads of three Japanese soldiers and stuck them on poles uh, facing the Japanese side of the river. Now, a colonel saw this and said, what are you doing? You're acting like animals. And one of the soldiers, a young, dirty, probably scared kid, replied, that's right, colonel. We are animals. We live like animals. We eat and are treated like animals. What the F do you expect? Now, all of this could happen because the seeds that all along were in uh, normal, everyday people had been taken out of the box, had been planted, watered, nurtured until they sprouted, grew, and bore a bitter fruit. Now today's passage of scripture, 1 Timothy 1 verses 12 through 17, gives us the example of a person very much like us, the Apostle Paul. Now when Paul was growing up in the city of Tarsus, which is in modern day Turkey, he came from a good family, he had money, he had a great education, he was religious, and he was trained by the leading rabbi of his day. Now probably the last thing he ever thought was that one day he would grow up to be a mass murderer. But he did. And then something happened. Jesus Christ got a hold of him and changed him from the inside out. So let's look at Paul's story and see how it applies to us. I'm reading from the New American Standard uh, Bible, 1 Timothy 1, beginning at verse 12. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant, 
with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now in, the, in these verses, Paul is giving us the example of his own life. Uh, but it's not just an interesting story about someone who was saved by grace, but is an example and a paradigm for our own lives. Because this passage is telling us that Christ transforms our lives from the inside out. Now, as we consider this passage, we will see first how Christ transforms our lives. We don't do it ourselves. Second, Christ transforms our lives. He doesn't just do minor tweaking. And third, Christ transforms our lives because our lives are not just about ourselves. So first, let's take a look about the fact that Christ transforms our lives. We don't do it ourselves. Now, although this passage <coughs> gives us the example of Paul's life, look at how Paul emphasizes that it is all about what Christ has done. Verse 12 says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Now in verse 13, uh, he tells us that he was shown mercy. That mercy was from Christ. Verse 14 talks about the grace of our, uh, of our Lord with the faith and love found in Christ. In verse 15, Paul points out that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In verse 16, he says, I found mercy so that Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him. And in verse 17, uh, all of this causes Paul to burst into praise to the King Eternal, which in context, I think, can only be uh, referring to the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. Now, how does Christ transform us? He transforms us by his grace through our faith. As uh, Paul said in verse 14, the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Now Paul put it similarly in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 where he said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. <clears throat> Now, no situation is too difficult and no sin is too great or too awful for God's grace to redeem and transform us. 
Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9, I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Yet, in his grace, Christ took Paul, uh, transformed him from the inside out, and made him into a great apostle. Now, I don't know what you have done in your life, but as Paul said in verse 14, God's grace is greater. And he emphasized that again in Romans 5, where he said, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. It is grace that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world says, in essence, if you want to get right with God, it is up to you to work harder, do enough good deeds, make enough sacrifices, and maybe he will accept you. But that program is doomed to failure. Why? Why does it take Christ to transform us? Why can't we do it on our own? It is because of who we are, and it is because of the nature of sin. You see, it's not a matter of education or background. This is where Paul's example is so instructive for us. Paul had a great background. He said in Philippians, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews and a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees were uh, the religious leaders of their day. He was trained under Rabbi Gamaliel, uh, the most well-known rabbi of his day. Paul was rich, powerful, well-educated, and he knew the Bible backwards and forwards. He had every possible advantage that this life has to offer. Yet what did all that do for him? In verse 13, he tells us, he says, I became a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. He was present and assisting in the execution of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And in Acts chapter 22, he said that he persecuted Christians to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison. Why did he do all this? Why did he become like that? Because what was in Paul is the same thing that is in the members of the Taliban, the same thing that was in those Germans and in those American soldiers in the Pacific. And it's the same thing that is in you and is in me. The Bible calls it the power of indwelling sin. It is something that we are born with and it will remain with us as long as we live in this world. As Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And Romans 3 adds, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks for God. All have turned aside. All have become useless. There is none that does good, not even one. 
And that is why when the circumstances are right and the seeds that were in Paul and are in us are planted, watered, and nurtured, they grow into acts of murder and brutality. Or, in our own lives, here in the valley, things of greed, pride, hatred, self-centeredness, fornication, thievery, and lies. Yet Christ, in his grace and mercy, because he loved us, and because he loves us, did for Paul and does for us what we could never do for ourselves. Amen. As verse 15 says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. Pardon me. Deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Now Samuel Ngewa, he's a Kenyan scholar, he points out that the description of Christ as having come into the world is an indication that he came from somewhere else. His origin is from heaven. Now Christ himself plainly told us this in John 6 verse 38 when he said, I have come down from heaven. You see, Christ and only Christ lived the life that we should have lived. He perfectly did God's will without even one sin. And in God's plan, that qualified him to step into our shoes and on the cross pay the price for our sin that otherwise we would have to pay but never could. All we have to do is believe in who Jesus is and what he has done, call out to him and take him into ourselves as our Savior and Lord. Then we too, like Paul, will be saved and transformed. Now no other religious leaders, not Muhammad, not Buddha, ever claimed to forgive people's sins or to save sinful people and they couldn't do so even if they had wanted to or even if they had tried because they were sinful people just like us. Um, and there's, you see, there's something wrong with them and there's something wrong with us deep in the core of our being. We can't do that ourselves. We can't change our hearts and no one else can do it for you. It's Christ or nothing. So turn to him if you haven't already done so and then follow him all the days of your life. Now that leads us to the fact that Christ transforms our lives. He doesn't just do minor tweaking. Now look at Paul. He went from being a persecutor to being persecuted. In verses 15 and 16, two times, Paul calls himself the foremost or chief of sinners because he led the charge in persecuting the church. But in Acts 9, Christ told Ananias, I will show him, referring to Paul, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And later on in his life, 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul recounted how many times he had been imprisoned, beaten, whipped, stoned, and shipwrecked for the sake of Christ. Yet it was all worth it because Paul had found the one thing more valuable than anything else in the world. He had found the pearl of great price. He had Christ. And Christ alone gives life, eternal life, new life from the inside out. Now, how transformative is Christ? Well, it's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. On the night before he died, Christ took the cup and he said, this is the New Covenant in my blood. And then the next day, he inaugurated the New Covenant on the cross. Now, what's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Well, under the Old Covenant, people had to continually make sacrifices for their sins. In the New Covenant, Christ has made the one sacrifice that is sufficient to forgive all of his people's sins forever. The Old Covenant did not give eternal life. In the New Covenant, we have eternal life. Under the Old Covenant, God's presence only dwelt in the temple, and the people had to go to the temple to get close to the presence of God. In the New Covenant, those who have Christ are the temple, and God has come to us. Under the Old Covenant, only the priests could enter the temple. In the New Covenant, all Christians are priests in the eyes of God. Under the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit left the temple never to return. In the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of all of believers and will never leave us or forsake us. Under the Old Covenant, the people were in bondage to a law which they could never fulfill. In the New Covenant, Christ has fulfilled the law for us and has written his law on our heart. And under the Old Covenant, the people had hearts of stone. In the New Covenant, God has replaced our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. Additionally, the Bible tells us that in Christ, we have been adopted into God's family, have been given the mind of Christ, and have a direct personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ that Old Covenant people could only dream about. The difference between not having Christ and having him is the difference between night and day. It is the difference between death and life. It is that transformative, and he intends it to be. The question is, are we experiencing that in our lives? Now, in Paul's case, 1 Timothy 1 verse 12 tells us that as the result of Christ's saving and transforming him, uh, uh, Christ considered me faithful, putting me into service. Now think about this. Paul was converted to Christ 
on the road to Damascus while he was in the process of persecuting the church. But then in Acts 9, it says that Paul spent several days with the disciples and then he immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. Now before that time, he had only acted against Christ and Christ's people. So how could he say in verse 12 that Christ considered me faithful and put me into service? Well, I think that the answer goes back to Ephesians chapter 2. Earlier, we read Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, regarding how we are saved uh, by God's grace through faith. Remember, it said, For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. But then verse 10 goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, in other words, God could consider Paul to be faithful because God knows our end from our beginning. From the beginning of the world, Paul was saved for good works, which God had prepared for him to do. And God knew that Paul would do them. The same is true for everyone here who is a Christian. God knows your end from your beginning, just as he knows my end from my beginning. He saved us for works that he himself has ordained for us to do from before the foundation of the world. Now, our calling as Christians is far grander than most of us think most of the time. If we are faithful and obedient to Christ, even the seemingly little events of our lives can have cosmic significance. And I think that's also why Paul could say in verse 13 that I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Again, think about it. Paul was one of the most well-educated men of his day, and he knew the Bible backwards and forwards. Yet he says, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, without receiving the mind of Christ, a new heart and a new spirit, we are all ignorant in a fundamental way, even if we go to church every Sunday, and even if we have memorized the entire Bible. As Keith Green said many years ago, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. <laughs> now, going to church is a good thing. Hopefully, it exposes you to God's word and to who Christ is. But it takes the work of Christ inside of us to transform us from ignorance, unbelief, and death to understanding, faith, and life. That is transformation of a fundamental kind. And this leads us to the last aspect of the transformation of our lives that Christ brings, which is something that needs to be emphasized, namely, 
Christ transforms our lives because our lives are not just about ourselves. Now here in the West, and especially here in the US, we live in probably the most individualistic culture and society in the history of the world. It's all about self-actualization, self-realization, and self-fulfillment. I mean, where else could you ever find um, a magazine called Self? But if, as we have seen, what Christ does is transformative in a fundamental way, if we now have him inside of us, his heart, his mind, his spirit, his values, his priorities, then by virtue of all of this, our lives cannot be limited to ourselves. Why not? Because as verse 15 reminds us, Christ came into the world not for himself, but to save sinners. Samuel Ngewa again says, the word here translated as sinners is a word meaning to miss the mark. The image is of someone shooting at a target. The shot goes wide and lands someplace else. And we all shoot wide. None of us manages to hit the target. The target is God's righteousness. See, God's plan of salvation is to bring us back on target. That is the mission on which Jesus Christ came. Now, we saw last week, in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, Paul told us what the goal or target or standard of God's righteousness is. Remember, verse 5 says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Now, by its very nature, love has to look outside of itself. There needs to be an object of love, which is other people. Jesus said in Matthew 22 that the entire Bible is summarized in two commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And as 1 John 4 verse 20 tells us, it is how we do the second command, loving our neighbor, that is the proof and the test of whether we are really doing the first command of loving God. The point is that our lives are not just about ourselves. We have not been saved just for ourselves. Now, because God is Trinity, he is profoundly relational at his core. We have all been made in God's image. That means that we are, by nature, relational beings. Our relational nature is now part of God's plan and design. God transforms us so that we will be his agents leading to the transformation of others. So how do we apply this new life in Christ? Well, the practical uh, application of the transformation that Christ brings requires effort 
on our part. In Christ, we don't work for our salvation. He's done everything uh, to give us salvation. But we now apply and we work out the implications of our new status and salvation in Christ. That's why Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13 uh, tell us, it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now notice that when we have Christ, he does not leave us on our own. That is why only in Christ we can be radically transformed because in Christ we receive a new heart according to Ezekiel 36 verse 26. We have a new mind, the mind of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16. We have a new spirit, according to John 14, verse 17. We have a new set of values and a new set of priorities. Now, he does not remove the power of indwelling sin from us. Instead, he gives us a greater power, himself through the Holy Spirit, who is active and at work in us, as Philippians 2 just told us. He is the one working in us who enables us to think as he thinks and to live as he lived. Now, regarding how we apply our faith and our life in Christ, let's consider three important areas or aspects of our lives where we can demonstrate the transformation that Christ brings. These three areas that I want to consider are patience, prayer, and what I call placement. In other words, what place does Christ have in our life? First, patience. Verse 16 of 1 Timothy 1 says, for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. When it says uh, that Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example, clearly the example is Christ. Now, Christ did not strike down Paul as soon as Paul sinned. And he didn't strike down me, and he didn't strike down you as soon as we sinned. He was patient with us, both before we came to know him and since we have known him. But Christ was also using Paul as an example of patience. Because in verse 16, Paul says that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience. Christ was working in and through Paul just as Christ now works in and through us. Now, how can we show the patience of Christ in our lives? Now, the orientation of our lives uh, should be other people's welfare and the effect of our actions on others. Remember, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. So we need to ask ourselves, 
Do we fly off the handle easily? Do we control our tongue? Now, you all know the prayer. Lord, give me patience, and I want it now! (laughs) I'm sorry to say that it does not work that way. Instead, God typically uses our hardships, suffering, and our weaknesses, faults, and temptations as his instruments to mold us into his image. Now, last week, we saw that the early church in Acts 4 had a different attitude about their money and their possessions. They started seeing their money and possessions not simply as their own things for their own benefit, but as tools of ministry that God had given them to demonstrate love for their neighbors uh, and to build up the body of Christ. Similarly, patience is engendered when we develop a new attitude towards our circumstances, sufferings, hardships, weaknesses, faults, and temptations. When we recognize that everything that happens to us ultimately has come through the hand of God, it will help us not get so bent out of shape when things don't go the way we think they should go. If we can see our hardships, suffering, weaknesses, faults, and temptations as God's instruments for maturing us and making us more like Jesus, uh, that we will then begin having a more dynamic relationship with God because we will be more consciously aware of his active presence in our life. Because all of these things, we will see he has let them into our life as his instruments for maturing us. Now this will lead us to be more patient with whatever circumstances we are in. And that, in turn, will help us to be more patient with the faults and flaws of others. Now second, consider our prayer life. We all have people in our lives that we want to see come to Christ. We'll keep praying for them. Now, when I was a lawyer, my wife and I and my mom and dad were members of the late lamented Riverview Country Club. Now, every Friday, Riverview had a wonderful seafood buffet, uh, which we often went to. Now, one of uh, my parents' friends was a man named Ken Benson. Ken Benson always mocked Christianity and the church. But then Ken got old, and he died. And I remember saying uh, to Nancy, well, no more seafood buffets for Ken Benson, and I'll bet it's a lot hotter where he is now than he ever imagined. But we went to the funeral. (laughs) We went to the funeral, and then the reception was held at Riverview. And uh, uh, at the reception, this guy came up to us, and he said, you're Jonathan and Nancy men, aren't you? I said, yeah. He said, you're those radical Christians, aren't you? I said, well, we're Christians. He said, I'm Ken Benson's son. Let me tell you about my dad. 
He said, you remember how my dad was? I said, we certainly do. Uh, he said, uh, I'm a Christian too. And when my dad was in the hospital just before he died, just a day or two before he died, I was with him and he repented and received Jesus as his Savior and Lord. Now that son had probably been praying for his dad for decades. And the same is true for us and the people we are praying for. It might take a long time. It might take decades. And we might never see the result of our prayers. But don't give up. Christ was patient with Paul. He was patient with me and he was patient with you. And because Paul, twice in verses 15 and 16, says that he is the foremost or chief of sinners, his argument is that if Christ could save me, he can save anybody. And I remember thinking at the time, if Christ can save Ken Benson, he can save anybody. So don't give up. Now, third, what place does Christ really have in our life? Now, the transformation of Paul's life is an example of what Romans 8, verse 29 is all about when it says that the whole point of our lives is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. In other words, to be just like him, which leads me to ask an important question question. Do people see or think of Jesus when they see or think of us? You don't have to answer that one out loud, but I must confess that in my own life, the answer to that question is basically no. People do not see uh, or think of Jesus when they see or think of me. But the fortunate thing is that none of us is a finished project. We can get serious about Christ beginning today, and the more serious we get about him, the more we truly see him, experience him, and the more he is truly first in our lives, the more we will model him. One person I read suggested that as you go about your daily routine, think, Christ is right here with me now. It only takes a split second. Now, Frank Laubach was a well-known missionary in the Philippines and a pioneer in developing uh, literacy programs. Now, Laubach came up with what he called the game with minutes. He, he wrote this, he said, Try to call him to mind at least one second of each minute. We don't need to forget uh, other things nor stop our work, but we invite him to share everything we say or think. Try how many minutes of the hour you can remember God at least once each minute. That is to say, bring God to mind at least one second out of every 60. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not necessary to think about him all the time because the mind runs rapidly along in a stream from one thought to another. He says, your score will be low at first, 
but keep trying. For uh, as you keep trying, it constantly becomes easier and after a while, almost automatic. Now you can Google Frank Laubach and the game with minutes and read more about that. But Laubach found that as Christ was more and more in his mind, Christ began to lead him in ways that he had never done before. Laubach's life was transformed. And the point is this, if we keep thoughts of Christ, his nature, his glory, in the forefront of our minds as we go through our days, we will grow closer to him and become more like him. And the closer we get to Christ, the closer we will get to others. It's kind of like a wheel. Christ is the hub and we are like points along the rim. Now as we all get closer to Christ, we are thereby getting closer to each other. Um, and the closer we get to Christ, uh, we will start feeling closer to people and acting closer to people and demonstrating the love of Christ for people more and more. So draw on Christ. What are the areas in your life uh, that you need to start working out the implications of what it means to call Christ your Lord? Maybe it's your marriage. Um, how do you treat your spouse? Maybe it's what you do with your money. Maybe it's what you do with your time. Uh, maybe it's how you hold grudges and need to start forgiving people. Or you need to ask for forgiveness quickly and without making excuses. Now, I don't know what your individual circumstances and situations are, but remember this. However this transformation works out in your life, you can trust Christ. So think where to begin, draw on his power to do what you need to do, and then do it. So let me conclude by saying this. As we take Christ deeper into ourselves, his love, his truth, his compassion for people will begin flowing out from our lives in practical ways. It was true in Paul's life, and it will be true in ours. We will be transformed from the inside out. And as we experience this, we will be able to see that it's not because of anything in us, but it all comes from Christ and what he is doing in us and through us. This will cause us to think and praise him, not only for what he has done uh, in us and through us, but for who he is. Then, like Paul in verse 17, by God's grace, we too will be able to exclaim from our hearts that to God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray with you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. And thank you for the example of Paul. Lord God, in so many ways, we are like him. So I pray, Lord God, that you will work in us and through us, just as you did with Paul, to transform us from the inside out so that 
When people see us, our family members, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, they will see more and more of you in us. For we ask all of these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for studying the Word of God with us today. If you were blessed by the teaching of it, would you please make sure to share it, that others too may be blessed and grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Until next time, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace.